It's pretty cool when the Lord allows you to live somewhere and he brings the mission to you. Um, so can't forget that. We are in Acts chapter 15. Um, and the gist of the message today is on conflict, differences um, within the local church. That, that's very much, uh, not just the local church, but, but the, the global church really. What we're dealing with in Acts chapter 15, if you remember last week, uh, we looked at this, this council uh, the, called the Jerusalem Council, and the reason that it came about at the beginning of chapter 15 is um, because the, the Gentiles have now received the gospel. Those non-Jewish uh, peoples have received the gospel some 10 years ago with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and so we fast forward about a decade, and what we find is that people, unlike the Jewish people, were responding to the gospel, and Paul being a classic missionary is like all you need is Christ alone, right? All you need is the gospel. And there was some debate within the church about whether or not Gentiles who came into the faith needed to be faithful um, to some Old Testament scripture that would seem to mean that they come to Christ and then they are circumcised and follow the ceremonial law, the rituals of Judaism. Of course, Paul and Barnabas are just, just trucking down the road with the gospel, and they say, absolutely not. Christ is sufficient, right? They receive the same spirit, they receive the same grace, and there's nothing more that they must do. Well, that bothers some of the um, folks in the, what we would say the conservative party, um, not, not politically, but re- religiously. That bothers them so much that they go from Jerusalem down to Antioch, where the Gentile movement is really taking hold, and they essentially send missionaries to say, that you must be circumcised in order to be faithful to God. And so that brings the leaders of the church, the elders of the church at Jerusalem, the apostles together, and they come to a conclusion that there is really, uh, there is no requirement uh, for circumcision. However, there are a few things that the Gentile believers need to avoid, both for their good and for the sake of fellowship. And those four things are blood from animals that have been strangled, from um, uh, things surrounding idolatry, and from sexual immorality. And we clarified that last week to, this isn't necessarily don't do these things because they're morally wrong, although they are, but don't do these particular things because um, it, it will break fellowship with your brothers, and we don't want that. So fellowship matters more in that way. Today we're looking at um, the response as that letter goes out to the churches because they leave Jerusalem and they're sent, um, they sent back, they're sent back to deliver the news that Gentile believers are sufficient in Christ through the gospel alone. And so this is the Reformation before Martin Luther. This is long before any of that. And so we're going to read verses 22 through 41 of Acts chapter 15 uh, together. So they write this, they, they conclude their thoughts at Jerusalem Council. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The letter in itself, probably not that captivating. I mean, just imagine getting a letter like that. The way in the modern church we wordsmith and send back and forth 25 times, and we'd probably say, well, we need a, a more softer introduction and a smoother conclusion and all these things. So it's just like, well, farewell. Uh, but remember what they say is the letter was accompanied by the people and that the people would remain and encourage the church. This is the way that, you know, the, that God has designed. He preserves his word, and it's intended to be accompanied by the church with the church, and so very much in that way. So they received these letters, and so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and have, having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so they were encouraged by this news. I mean, I imagine so, particularly the men, right? This was good news. Oh, y'all ain't getting it. Circumcision was the issue. <laughs> I mean, there's some grown men in there probably like thankful. But really, what more does that mean? It means, it means that freedom in Christ is freedom in Christ. And so they were greatly encouraged. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's literally translated long sermon, and I kid you not. They listened to a very long sermon, essentially. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so they returned with this letter that is birthed out of a disagreement in the church, a conflict, a fundamental conflict that had the potential to divide and split the entire fellowship of the global church at that time. And so there's a beautiful conclusion to this matter, but Dr. Luke in writing Acts doesn't want us to move too on into the, too quickly into kumbaya. He wants to remind us that the early church, like the modern church, was full of differences and full of conflict that would find its resolution in the gospel. So he continues, so Paul and Barnabas continue in Antioch teaching, and then Paul in classic Paul fashion probably gets bored and says, we have to go make a new advancement, take new ground for the gospel. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, I am bored. Let us know. He says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, Father, this is your word. Use it to strengthen your church even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those... Uh, messages on conflict and what really is a beautiful opportunity for every Christian, beautiful opportunity for the church. It's one of those messages I probably could preach without notes, um, just on 10 years of pastoral ministry. Um, and I don't say that negatively. I say that I, I think I've seen and, and not near of what I will see in my whole life, but I have seen um, conflict uh, divide and I've seen conflict unite. And I've seen probably the most prominent posture towards conflict in the American South avoided. 
Um, we have mighty big piles under mighty big rugs in the South, don't we? Uh, we kind of the ultimate ethic that many of us were taught growing up is just not to talk about it, and it will somehow go away. Don't you love that? That it will somehow just dissipate. So we're going to talk about conflict today, but we're going to frame it in a way that I think we see uh, the beautiful working of the Lord um, in Acts 15, but elsewhere in Scripture too. Charlene Tarber, who goes to our first worship gathering and, and is with us during the summer months, and she escapes to Florida during the winter months. Um, this is her last, Sunday, uh, her last Sunday with us until the spring, and she was talking to me after the service about conflict and, and really came to the conclusion that if we never settle conflict, if we never find reconciliation and resolve conflict in the local church, how are we supposed to demonstrate the gospel practically to our neighbors and our friends in the world around us? So if we avoid conflict, we never have the opportunity to reconcile that conflict and thereby demonstrate the gospel in a very practical way. I think we're missing the opportunity to show the gospel when we sweep conflict under the rug. So I want to talk about that today um, because we're here. There's not a particular thing on the front of our radar. There's, for those of you who are wondering, there's not this major thing looming over us. There's not a shadow over Perkinsville Church. We're just in Acts 15, and Acts 15 is about conflict. And so I would just say that. Secondly, I'm not going to deal with all the conflict in the world. We know one truth. We know that the, 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 the nations rage and the people plot in vain. We know that the world is in conflict. And so I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us today. And I want to frame it so I want to frame this in the reality of the church around us. And I want you to hear me say this, that conflict is part of God's path to growth. He really does use it in beautiful ways if we submit ourselves to the Lord. And I think that's really what we see at work today. So I offer you just a way to think about conflict from the passage, and we'll jump back into these portions. But we're going to fundamentally ask ourselves, when we, when we enter into disagreement, when we enter into conflict, what matters most? Or as I'm going to frame it, what matters more in that moment? Where are our priorities in our conflicts and our disagreements as the people of God, as children of God, as co-laborers in Christ, as recipients of grace, what matters most when we disagree? And so we're going to ask some diagnostic questions from the text. I'm going to offer kind of statements in each point, but we're going to ask some questions. What matters most in conflict and disagreement in my life as a Christian, in our church's life together? Is it God's will or is it my will? And don't be too quick to give the Sunday school answer. Well, of course it's God's will, you want to say. Well, absolutely, tell your heart that next time and see how that works. This is a lifelong journey. But is it God's will that matters most or is it my will? Secondly, is it spirit or self? We're going to ask that question too. Who is leading me and guiding me through these conversations? in these conflicts? Is it the Spirit of God or is it myself? And lastly, what, what vision do we keep before us in our disagreements? Is it the, the mission of God or is it the preferences of people? And so we really have to assess ourselves. And I come into this saying that, that like, we have a lot of rough examples before us. There's a pastor named Randy Smith. He hasn't written any books, but he has preached on this particular subject. And I found one of his statements really poignant. He says, the times have not changed. Infighting, friendly fire within the church has become a great hindrance to the gospel work and has resulted in many discouraged, disappointed, depressed, and defeated, once motivated servants of Christ. Satan will muster all of his forces to oppose God's work. Quite often he will use spiritless people from within to hinder the work of spirit-filled people. Tragically, sometimes our greatest opponents can be those within the household of faith simply because they are critical, bitter, or jealous. 
And that, that's the reality. That's the reality here in New North Carolina. That's the reality in most of the country. If you travel down certain stretches of road in our country county, you'll see not one, but two or maybe three churches, not plants, but splits. Somebody got mad at somebody else and they started their own thing until they got mad at somebody else and they started another. Not the result of intentional, prayerful, fasting, missional church planting to reach the lost, but rather a new club to hang out with the people who didn't fight with you in the first place. And that's kind of the reality we find ourselves. And so how do we change that narrative? Even at Perkinsville Church, we are not exempt from change. In fact, I would say that being an established church in 1947, we're one of the only churches that I know of, and I mean this when I say this, from across the state of North Carolina, you don't run into a lot of churches established in 1947 who intentionally shift their vision and their mission and are intentional about making disciples of people who don't look, think, act, talk, or feel like they are already. That doesn't happen very often. The reason that churches are planted every single day in our country is because they're needed, because the established churches fail to address the great change that God is calling them towards. And so I say this from a place of real encouragement and joy and hopefulness for the future, notwithstanding that it doesn't come without a cost. It comes with a cost. And so how do we continue focused on what God has called us to, knowing that we will absolutely disagree because unity is not uniformity, knowing that we will face more conflict? How do we as a church think about conflict and challenge and even differences of opinion rightly and faithfully? The first point that I am making clearly is when we question what matters more, we have to ask God's will or my will, and we know the correct response every single time without exception, is God's will over my will. So go back to the text, and maybe from last week, Evan's going to be helpful to be familiar with. Acts 15 tells the story of God moving in the Gentiles. And I will be very honest with you, we know Paul's life, we know Barnabas's life, but particularly Paul's, Paul probably, if he had his druthers, if he had his preference, would have preferred that all who come to Christ follow the ritual of circumcision and follow the mosaic, the, the ceremonial law to a T. It's what he was raised in. Paul knew it better than anybody else, right? But there was something else at work other than Paul's experience and Paul's preference, and if you go back earlier in chapter 15, the appeal made at the Jerusalem council is not based on their own willpower, not what they wanted at all. In Acts chapter 15, verse 8, Peter makes this statement. It wasn't that I made a choice, he says, but verse 8 says, God, who knows the heart, gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He says, God made a choice among you. So the argument in the Jerusalem council to accept the Gentiles by faith was not their choice. He's clearly making this point. Listen, I would love to argue what I want, and I know that you would love to argue what you want, but we need to keep something in mind. There is something God wants that's far more important than what I or you want at the end of the day. God made the choice to invite the Gentiles into this. this we are simply ambassadors and spokesmen and apostles and ministers of our Father's will. And so we are here not to represent ourselves or defend our theology or our missiology or our preferences. We're simply here to tell you what we have seen God doing in the last 10 years beginning with Cornelius God made a choice and that's what they lay on the table but it doesn't end there in chapter 15 verse 12 Paul and Barnabas are recounting the signs and wonders that God has done amongst the Gentile people essentially they are reinforcing what has already been said and they're essentially to say if God had not made a choice if this was not God's will then tell me how would have God so clearly and undeniably worked signs and miracles amongst the Gentile people over these last 10 years 
And so you may not like it, I may not like it, but it's not up to us. It's God's will. So very much in this whole argument, this whole debate, this whole conflict, you essentially have a defense not of Peter or Paul's or Barnabas's will, but God's will. And there is this beautiful acknowledgement when they conclude these statements in verse 19 that leads to the letter we read of today that says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should simply write this letter for them to abstain from these particular things so there may be fellowship. Here's the bottom line. God desires far more than you or I can even ask or imagine. But, but we do. We, this, is, this is easier said than done. Because uh, we bring a lot of values to the conversation, but these values are often based on our culture or institutions or norms, or what we've learned, these values we often bring into debate really are just a reflection of our will. You know, I talk about this in an aspirational way. I, I, seek, to, I seek to be a church where God's will wins out over our will every time. But then I, I do look at some examples over the past of the way that the church has and is dividing even in today kind of funny for us for some of these things to to think about but in the moment it wasn't too funny there was a short plump monk named Martin Luther who was having some mead at the local bar in Germany and he heard an organ in the corner and said that is a beautiful instrument and he says pick up that organ and take it to the church we're going to use that in worship and what do you think those religious folks said when they saw a bar instrument show up in the church? Get that out of here. Depart from me. Flee Satan in Jesus' name. Get that organ. Now, I want you, some of y'all probably have some emotional attachments to organs at some point, but I want you to recognize when the organ came in, it was, the, it was Satan himself coming in because that came from a bar. And it's fascinating. It was a controversy in the 16th century, and when they started to leave in the 20th century, they were just as controversial on their way out. Wherever did they go? Hymnals. Do you, I've often heard, and it's kind of funny, in our generation, we talk about hymnals, how no one uses hymnals anymore. There was a greater controversy at one point in the church history, and that's when they printed hymnals and put them in the pews. And the reason for that controversy was is that people ought to memorize the lyrics to those hymns and not have to have a songbook to tell them how to sing them. So there's a bunch of curmudgeons, I'm sure, and they were all Baptists like us, and probably saying, well, you ought to memorize that. And the second greatest controversy is when the hymnals came out. Church music's one of those crazy, divisive points in the church and has always been. I opt that we just go to purely Gregorian chant at Perkinsville and quit the controversy over old hymns or new songs. I'm tired of all that mess. We're just going to chant in robes. <laughs> Old-timey music was not beginning and did not begin in mid-century America. There are some monks that would tell us otherwise, and King David might say it's older than that. But here's the point. As we laugh about it, I want you to think about in the moment, 
These things were not laughable. Truly divisive. Church ha- churches, we, we kid about carpet color because unfortunately, churches have split in arguments that started over such things. The language of heaven is multiplication. The language of heaven is unity. The language of hell is division. God desires a will greater than yours or mine or a preference greater than yours or mine or an appeal to something higher than you or me. He calls us to lay down our will to honor and acknowledge a higher will. Not only in disagreements, but in the good days as well. Division and discouragement is not the language of the Jerusalem Council. Unity and the advancement of the kingdom is very much the language. And so I conclude this point by simply finding it fascinating that the apostles were simply saying, rather than try to determine God's will for ourselves, let's just look at what God is doing and join Him in the work. Wouldn't that be fascinating? The second is not just God's will, but we want know the one who always confirms and conforms to the Father's will is the Spirit. And this element is seeing Spirit over self ten times out of ten. The Spirit over self. Isn't it neat how they use the language in verse 28? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Interesting use of the language. Simply not to say that, well, if the Spirit had a vote and we had a vote, we'd have a tie. It's not like that. Simply to show them the beauty when the human heart conforms to the Spirit's will and the Spirit's power and the Spirit's desire. That's what the Spirit wants. He wants John 17 unity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity, unity is not everybody does and thinks exactly the same way and does the exact same stuff. Unity is founded in the Spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to pause here for just a moment and acknowledge something very real. Just imagine if the Jerusalem Council never met. Do you think that the disagreement would go away? Do you think that the the differences of strategy and opinion would go away? No, absolutely not. What would they do? Roots of bitterness, strife, gossip, and division certainly have destroyed the first century church, but it was a spirit in his desire for unity who leads these brothers to come together and intentionally say, it is good to the spirit of God that we unite in such things. It is good. It doesn't make you less Jewish in your heritage or less Gentile in your heritage. It it simply acknowledges that that is good and right. It is a true reality of who you are. You come from very different backgrounds. You have very little in common from childhood. There's not a lot of shared experiences outside of the gospel that you can point to. But because you share the experience and the reality of the gospel, you are in one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism says, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. This is the message and the work of the Spirit. What the Spirit aims to do in Christ's church is far better than you or I can ask or imagine. And the Spirit works through us to bring such a beautiful unity to the body of Christ. To work through the challenges for the good and glory of Christ. 
the will of God and the Spirit of God. Back in June, as elders, we recognized that a lot of times things happen with conflict or problems that we kind of want somebody else to deal with in the local body. I don't like Matt's cane, but I'm not going to tell Matt about it. <laughs> I'm going to tell Dustin about it. I'm going to say, Dustin, Matt's cane is stupid and it bothers me. And I'm going to hope that Dustin says, you know what, I think it's pretty dumb too. And so I really just want commonality. And so I go to Dustin, and maybe I hope that Dustin will tell Matt, hey, I don't want him to use my name. We always say that, don't use my name. So Dustin then goes to Matt, and he says, Matt, some people are saying your cane is stupid. And it just starts this, this unhealthy cycle of mess. But more than that, we're just afraid of it. We're afraid of conflict for many reasons, maybe trauma in our own lives, maybe just bad, painful church experience. But as elders, we recognize there was really a need to shepherd these conversations. Literally, when any believer in the church is, is hears or acknowledges conflict or problems, just what is something that can help shepherd us through this in a God-glorifying way? And so we made a statement called Approaching Problems and Conflict, and we'll have it online, but I brought printed copies, and we'll have them available. It's literally front and back. No book, no brochure. It's a front and back. Doc. But listen to the foundational principles, guiding principles for challenging conflict. First of all, seek the Spirit and others even over yourself. Man, when you, when you view the problem or the conflict in the right frame, it's amazing how it changes it. Secondly, Assume the best in your brothers and sisters. Assume the best in your brothers and sisters. So often the church is quick to assume the best in the world and the worst in the church. Assume the best in your brothers and sisters. Thirdly, give the benefit of the doubt. Fourthly, extend grace radically just as you have received grace radically. And then you go through this and it, it's, just a, it's to help us see if there's a sin in a brother or sister or a sin against us, we don't have to guess. Matthew 18 is this beautiful calling for us to go to that brother or sister in love for the sake of reconciliation. But there's so much more in here. Is this a problem? Is this a preference? Is this an issue of doctrine? Is this strategy mission? Is this a decision or ministry? Or let's just be honest. Sometimes we just don't like people and we try to find everything they're doing wrong and make that the problem. Rather than just saying, man, I don't like that guy, and I need, I need to deal with it. I need to go before that. I need to take this to the Lord. Don't you do that? You, you don't like somebody, even though you don't want to say that because you're a good Christian, and you've got a Jesus fish on the back of your car. But maybe that's what you need to acknowledge, because what you're going to find in your own heart is probably some sin there to deal with. I commend this to you because it's a practical way to actually see the Lord work through conflict and restoration. How can we practically show the gospel to the world around us if we are unwilling to seek reconciliation where conflict and problems exist? That's the beauty of this passage is literally as there was potential for the church to be literally destroyed in the first century, have no Acts 15 to read, so to speak, the, the, the people of God submitted themselves to, their, to the will of God and the Spirit of God. And it's wonderful the way that it concludes, right, man? The church is encouraged, right? Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent out. Wait, there's more conflict. It's kind of the way Luke writes it, isn't it? 
I mean, I say Paul got bored. I really do think Paul got bored. Paul was an apostle. He had to move on. He wanted to, he wanted to shepherd those and stop through those churches he had already seen, but move on from Antioch. The kingdom will not advance without us being faithful to the giftings that God has entrusted to us. And so they set out, but no, before they set out, they're, they're planning to kind of just do the same thing that they were doing before. And Paul and Barnabas get in a sharp disagreement about John called Mark or John Mark. This happens in one verse on Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It just says John Mark was out. There are a lot of theories as to why they separated, but we know that for some reason he abandoned the mission, and that's what Paul's gripe with him is. Essentially, we can't, he can't be trusted to stay with us when the going gets tough. And Barnabas, being a man of such encouragement and compassion, is like, man, I really, I really want him to come along. Galatians 2, by the way, I'm not going to read it, but Galatians 2, verses 11 through 15 might give us some more context to this disagreement. We're not sure. They're not sure, the scholars. I say like we, like I'm a scholar. The scholars aren't sure. I mean, my, my dumb theory is that Paul is just spiritualizing a moment. John Mark was a really loud snorer, and he could never sleep, and so he doesn't want him to go along, and he's spiritualizing the moment. That's my dumb theory. No, there's some really good theories out there. It doesn't really matter. No, we know the point is, is that this is more than just a disagreement. This is a sharp disagreement. There's some pointed words. This is a moment that if, if conflict makes you awkward, you would have been awkward in this moment kind of stuff, right? Like if you're the person who you're like, oh, and you just get out of the way if somebody disagrees, right? This is like a Dave Mug moment. That's what I think of. It's one of those moments, yeah, amen, right? Like, like if you've not been around Dave, you need to be around Dave, particularly in a workshop, particularly when somebody, particularly Terry, disagrees with him. <laughs> but I mean, all honesty, these two brothers disagree on just a few things. And the way in which they dialogue never makes me think that they hate one another. And I never doubt their motives or a motives or motive in love. It's kind of a practical application of this, even as I kind of joked at the beginning, this sharp disagreement. And ultimately, they don't travel down the same road at the same time any longer. Now, you do know, I won't tell you the rest of the story, but, but Paul eventually becomes reconciled to John Mark. He mentions him as a, as a co-worker several times in Colossians and Philemon and 2 Timothy. And, and we know that, that he, he calls for these men. This, this wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't like, I hate you, goodbye, Right? This was like, we fundamentally disagree, but the mission is too important for us to stop. The mission has to matter more than our preferences in this moment. The kingdom has to matter more than our preferences in this moment. And so you're going to go this way, and I'm going to go this way to the glory of God for the kingdom of God that may come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way we're going to go forward. Oh, my goodness, I pray this for the modern church so much so. I pray this for Perkinsville Church in this moment, that we would continue to be the church who believes that mission matters more that mission is more important than our preferences, that every single one of us would probably do this a little bit differently if it was us, but together we believe that we've been called to the mission of God for the glory of God, right, and for the good of people. That's what this is about. Oh my goodness, I love this. I love it. Couldn't be about this more. You know, these past two years have been so fascinating for us, I think practically and very locally for us as a church, and I'm kind of glad it's just us today on fall break because our brothers and sisters who are on fall break, I don't know what they're doing on fall break, but they'll be back. I'm glad it's just us for a moment. 
because I was reflecting on the last two years and after I had the darkest, deepest crisis of my life in early 2020 and then COVID came along and the Lord broke me down, literally cut me out from under myself so I wouldn't rely on myself. I remember the first meeting back with our elders and we, this isn't like one of those things like, oh yeah, it's concluded. But I told them, I said, if we are attempting to be what we were before COVID, then I cannot do it. If our, if our measure of recovery from COVID in a year or two years is just to be the church we were before COVID, I'm out. I am so not going back to that place where we were doing a thousand things and about half of them we were doing just okay. And of course, you know, when you say that, it's like, oh yeah, absolutely. We need about one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. That's what we got to do. We can, we can do lots of good things all right, or we can do one thing really well, the thing that God's called us to. And we all say that's well and good, but over the last two years, literally, it's been like, well, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? Should we, should we, can we do this, can we do this? And every single time, I fight it like the plague. No, we must be the church that does the one thing God has called us to do for the glory of God. That's it. That's it. Mission has to matter more. And as you know, these last two years have been really refining. And we've had, I've had moments where I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, what am I doing? Um, what is happening here? Um, but brothers and sisters, I, you, you, just speaking to this idea of mission matters more, like if we frame our disagreements under the banner and the common commitment as a church that mission matters more, then we're going we're gonna to see some really beautiful conversations start to emerge. Let me, let me just say what, by what mission matters more. I mentioned earlier that it was fascinating how they just looked where God was already at work and they just joined him in it. And I'm going to tell you, the Lord has, has been in a powerful way at work on these two campuses just down the street from us, really one literally and one a few more miles out through the woolly worm traffic and you'll find Lee's McRae. I sat around a room a few weeks ago, and it's probably been a couple months now, with about 15 pastors from 15 churches in our area. And I've shared this story before, but Scott Andrews, pastor at Alliance, he just said, hey, hey, brothers, how many college students do these 15 churches represent? You know, we have a campus of over 20,000, and we recognize with 15 churches in the room, less than 1,000 students were probably represented in those churches. Less than a thousand. And that, that, that can mean anything. That means coming in and getting free food. That could be heavily invested. It could mean all those things. But I realized in that moment, and it wasn't anything new, it's what we're going after. We, like, we can no longer be, like the answer typically has been, well, let's just start a ministry and it kind of let them go reach them, right? Like you, no longer in a town who doubles in population, obviously when, when the campus is in, can you just be a church with a ministry for that? You've got to be a church that's sold out to reach the campus. And, and quickly, you know, the response to that in my own heart and some of y'all's hearts has been like, well, what about me? It, it, there is no forsaking of anybody. You know who college students need to see? They need to see, they need to see young professionals. They need to see singles. They need to see married couples. They need to see families. They need to see retirees. You know what they need? They need to see you faithfully following Jesus in the rhythm of your life because that's what they're going to do the minute they walk out of Boone and they walk wherever they're going in the world. They need to see you. They need to know you. They need to know your heart for Jesus, and they need to see you living life together. That's what they need. They don't need some special recipe, some formula. They don't need you to know a 15-step discipleship process. They need to see you, husbands, loving your wife 
wives, raising your children. They need to see you raising up. And, and how do you deal with grandchildren? How do you deal with being single at 35 years old? I don't, they need to see this and live this and know this. And most of all, see what it looks like when people of every generation speak to one generation saying, I believe that you can change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know any other place. There aren't many places in the whole country. I mean, you can look at best college towns in the USA from all the magazines. I don't know many places where we have been blessed to literally sit here and see the nations come to us for four to six years and literally go wherever they're going. How can we not be a part of that? And so, although, listen, I'm going to tell you, you know what? I would make lots of different churches around my preferences. Do lots of things different if we were building the church that Seth loves rather than the church that Seth is called to serve through. Every single one of us, how are we called to serve other people? If it was just a, the church of Seth's preferences or Trenton's preferences or, or Matt's preferences with the cane, like, like, like it, it, every single one of us, it would look so different, y'all. None of us are building a church that is all about us. It's not for us. Mission matters more. And so we disagree, and we should, and we should talk through it, and conflict should emerge, but we should never question that the main reason that we have been put here at this address is not by accident in this place at such times as this, right? And every once in a while, the Lord is very gracious to give us signs and reminders that He's faithful. And I want to take three and a half minutes here, and this will, kind of, this will bring the conclusion, but I want to share with you three and a half minutes of such a confirming and encouraging moment of what happens when a church doesn't just say, we're going to do this, 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 and this, but we're going to do one thing, and we're going to reach a campus for Christ, and everything we do is going to be about seeing that become a reality. I just want to share this three and a half minute encouragement with you. From a young age, I played softball. I played in school and I played travel ball for a total of 16 years. My identity was heavily rooted in softball. My biggest goal for softball was to play in college and I ended up getting the opportunity to play at Lee's McCray. Having the opportunity to play in college was extremely rewarding. I was just very proud would put in the extra work before and after practice. I determined who I was based off the sport. So my purpose was softball, and I, I didn't see beyond that. But one day we were throwing before practice just to get warmed up. And when I got the ball in my hand, it felt completely foreign. I couldn't picture the proper motion to throw. It felt like I had never held a softball before, and I was flooded with fear. Softball was the one thing that I could count on, the one place that I could go to escape. It was my safety, and when I had forgotten how to throw, it was like it all got ripped out from under me, and I really didn't know who I was. When I first met Cassidy, she has a magnetic personality. As I played golf and she played softball, we kind of just had a bond through athletics. I started doing a Bible study at Lisa McRae, really seeking to reach student athletes there. My sophomore year, I started going to this Bible study and it was the first time that someone had told me to like read my Bible. 
And so as I was really struggling with this question of like, who am I? Like, what is my purpose if it's not to be a softball player? And I just read truth and I read how the only thing that I could build my life around that was true and stable and firm um, was Christ and the work that he had done for me on the cross. So I thought that I was going to Lee's McRae to play softball, but really the Lord drew me to Lee's McRae to draw me to him. And in that season of my sophomore year, he saved me and changed the trajectory of my life. And so I transferred to App, App State, and I got more involved at Perkinsville Church. So when she came to Appalachian, we just got to spend a lot more time together, live life with one another, but also like talk through God's word as well. I just realized that my identity in anything of this world, not just softball, was never gonna last, but my identity in Christ was something that would last my entire life. Seeing the work that God has done in her life in the past year has been I mean, astronomical. She has a heart to reach Lee's McRae students. In our backyard, we have 20,000 students at Appalachian State that do not know Jesus. And so it's our prayer really that they would, they would come, that God would save them, and He would send them out to a lost and dying world. And NC Baptists have really come alongside us and helped equip the generations throughout the local church to help reach the next generations. So buildings and budgets and programs and calendars and where we do this or that are all important. Brothers and sisters, as we lovingly debate and even face the challenge of the future together, mission must matter more. It certainly did for the early church. And so my prayer as we as we close, as I close us in prayer, is that, is that we've already experienced stories like Cassidy three, four, five, six, seven, over 30 times this year. That's what matters most. And so we unite for this cause. And so I will pray to commend you to the grace of our Lord and the mission ahead. So Father, we, we acknowledge that the days ahead, many will be bright and many may be gloomy. There will be challenges, there will be difficulties, no doubt, there will be conflict, and there will be disagreement, but these are things that we do not shy away from or pretend away, but rather we will lean into for the sake of your glorious and radical gospel being displayed to the generations. Lord, keep us close to your will. Keep us close and sensitive and listening to your spirit and keep ever before our eyes the mission of Jesus Christ uniquely given to this church for such a time as this at this place. Keep us focused on the task at hand as well as the accomplished work of Christ and Christ alone who welcomes us into fellowship for the sake of the Great Commission. It is Christ alone. And Lord, I, I pray in this moment if there's someone in this space or perhaps we know someone who isn't in this space, 
who is apart from Christ, who is living in their own will and pursuing their own will, their own power. Lord, that you, you would humble them, that they would call out the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. Let us retell the story of our salvation so we may tell it to others. The story of Christ alone and in Christ alone, our hope is found. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.